You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. I would invite you to turn there now. Let me get this cable out of my way. I will be looking at verses 23 through 34. Uh, Last Sunday, we focused on verses 17 through 22. And there we saw problems that the church in Corinth were having, uh, namely great division that led the church into sinning against one another. We noticed how these things destroy a church. When a church is divided, it will dishonor one another, and then the fellowship will be torn apart. And we saw that what was supposed to be a unifying event for the church ended up being the greatest display of division, and that was the Lord's Supper. And their sin was so grievous that Paul even said that they weren't even truly celebrating the Lord's Supper. So this was all the the preamble to the teaching proper of the Lord's Supper, and that's where we move to this morning. As I mentioned last week, the Lord's Supper is one of the two ordinances that Jesus has given to his church to observe until he returns. Now, baptism tends to be something that we get pretty pumped about here. Whenever we do a baptism, there's usually a lot of cheers and applause and a celebration, and it's, it's good. We should absolutely do that. But my fear is that we don't share that same understanding or fervor when it comes to the Lord's Supper. It might feel more like a ritual or a practice that you maybe you get, maybe you don't fully understand it. And when it comes to the Lord's Supper, you might be asking yourself, why are we doing this? Who should be participating? What should I be doing from the time I walk up to get the elements to the point where we're all taking it together? How do I make this meaningful and, and why do we do this every week when I grew up doing it once a month or once every few months? Well, these are all really good questions, and I hope that the uh, sermon this morning will answer all of those. So the big question that we are going to be asking and then answering is, what is the Lord's Supper? And we are going to see four things in our text, four things. First, it is an act of remembrance. In partaking of the supper, the church remembers its deliverance from sin, and it remembers the atoning work of Jesus. Second, it is a proclamation of the gospel. The event itself displays the gospel to the church and to outsiders. It reminds us of Jesus' presence, and it reorients our hope toward the future. Third, it is an occasion for self-examination. The seriousness of sin and division in the church is confronted by this gospel-declaring meal. And fourth, it is a call to repentance, love, and unity. In partaking, we commit ourselves to the Lord and to one another and receive his mercy and grace afresh. It is my hope that as we let the word of God speak to us This morning, that we will all come to a deeper and more passionate understanding of the Lord's Supper. And it is my hope that when we come each Lord's Day to this table, that we come with an eager anticipation and joy. So with that, let's pray, and then we will get into uh, the text. Father, we are thankful for this 
this day in which you have appointed for us to gather as a church. This is the Lord's day. It is the day that you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We thank you for the communion of the saints. We thank you for the encouragement that we have through the Spirit who bonds us together in love. We thank you for the gift of your word, that it instructs us, it corrects us, and it nourishes us. We thank you for the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We pray that today as we sit ourselves underneath of your word, that we would be lifted high, as we would see the the beauties that are found in this ordinance that you have given to us. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. So what is the Lord's Supper? First, it is an act of remembrance. Follow along, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Well, before getting into the issue of remembrance, let's observe a few things at the beginning of verse 23. Paul says that this teaching was received directly from the Lord Jesus. So the authority on this issue goes all the way back to Jesus himself. It is the authority of Jesus that weighs on this issue of the Lord's Supper and how this church was abusing it. And this is important because this command and this teaching belongs to Jesus. Last week in verse 20, what did Paul call this supper? He did not call it Paul's Supper. It is not called the church's supper. It's not called the Apostles' Supper. It is the Lord's Supper. And Paul testifies that it is the Lord who has instituted this. We are merely stewards. We are merely benefactors of what he has given to us. And so the implication here is pay attention. This is something we must all pay clear and close attention to. I can't help but think of what the author of the, the Hebrews said in chapter 2 when he describes the authority of Jesus as being better than all the other angels and all the other messengers. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. This is because what we have heard comes from Jesus. It's sort of like when you're a kid, you get in trouble at, at home with mom, and then your, your mother tells you your father is going to talk to you when he gets home. There's a certain jolt that should come from that, a certain seriousness to what has just taken place. That's what's happening here. The authority of Jesus is being called. And we also see that this teaching is something that Paul has already taught the Corinthians. He said, what I also delivered to you. Clearly, they needed to be reminded of these things. And it's worth noting that sometimes so do we. Sometimes we need to be reminded of biblical truths, of doctrines, of Christian ethics. Because we're all capable of drifting, individually, corporately. And all these things often happen in imperceptible ways. Just one degree off. One degree over many, many, many miles will get you far away from where you're expected to be. You'll be in a totally different place. 
And so we must be vigilant. But even as we are vigilant, we must be hopeful. And as a church, there will always be things that are to be commended, and there will always be things that are not to be commended, and that should be corrected according to the word of God. One of the rally cries of the Reformation was Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda, which means the church reformed, always reforming. So a healthy church and healthy Christians must always be submitted to the scrupulous eyes of the Lord Jesus through his word. And as we'll see later, the Lord's Supper provides for such an occasion. Well, Paul then goes on to recall what it is that Jesus taught him. Uh, And this is where we get into the issue of remembrance. Uh, This is a teaching that is grounded in history. It goes back to the night when Jesus was betrayed. This was during the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I think that it is interesting that Paul calls that time, that event, that night, by calling it the night when Jesus was betrayed. He could have rightly called it uh, the night when he was seized by the Romans or the night when he was put before the Jewish trial. But that is not what he did. Instead, he calls to mind the betrayal of Judas. And I think the reason that he does this is in order to show that what this church was doing is another betrayal of Jesus. It shows the seriousness of their error. They're acting more like the false disciple Judas than true disciples, like the apostles. And what did Jesus say in in chapters 13, 14, and 15 of the Gospel of John? He says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You are my friends if you do what I command you. These are the things that this church has failed to do. And so Jesus and his disciples were celebrating the Passover, but what is the Passover? It is a feast day. It's a special meal that the Israelites were to celebrate as an act of remembrance of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. You'll recall that they had been in bondage in Egypt for over 400 years. And through Moses, God delivered them through a sequence of 10 plagues. And the last of these plagues was the death of the firstborn. The angel of death would pass through Egypt and it would kill all the firstborn in the land. And God told the Israelites that the only way to escape this death was to kill a spotless lamb and then spread its, spread its blood over the doorposts of their homes. And then the angel of death would pass over them, hence the name Passover. And that night was the first institution of this Passover meal. The meal had components and ritual involved. In addition to eating the Passover lamb, they would eat bitter herbs to remind themselves of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. They would eat unleavened bread, which is bread without yeast, because of the quickness with which they had to flee Egypt. And they would drink cups of wine at various times during the meal. There would be prayers, teaching, and singing of hymns that would happen as well. For the Jewish people, their deliverance from Egypt is the most foundational, fundamental event in their identity as a people. It is what made them a people for God. It reminds them of his faithfulness. And so this meal held special significance for them. 
But a curious thing happens as Jesus is celebrating this with his disciples. Jesus gave his disciples a new teaching about this meal and changed its meaning and significance. To the Lord's Supper, it is a transformation of the Passover. It is the fulfillment, we might say, of the Passover. Paul recounts Jesus' words here in our text at the end of verse 23. You can look at that again. He said, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus takes these two elements of the meal and he transforms them into a new sign of God's deliverance, a sign of a better deliverance. God's people no longer look back to the Exodus as the great sign of God's deliverance. We look at Calvary. We don't look back at the blood on the doorpost. We look at the blood of the Lamb of God that was shed for us on the cross. And so the Passover is done. We do not celebrate the Passover because we celebrate the greater Passover, the Lord's Supper. And it is greater because it is a sign of a greater deliverance. Now, very quickly, I I do want to look at what has been and still remains today a contested issue regarding Jesus' words here. Do you see that phrase, this is my body? Well, this is one of the most disputed phrases in the Bible. And what it comes down to is a debate about whether is means identity or resemblance. Or we might put it in this way, is the is literal or figurative? And this is mostly a a debate between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, although Lutherans kind of have this weird uh, middle position. But the question is, how is Jesus present in the Lord's Supper? And so since this is one of those things that does divide us from Roman Catholicism, I did want to briefly examine it. Well, the Roman Catholic Church holds to what is called transubstantiation. Um, And that word, if you break it into its part, you can really understand what it means, trans and substance. So it is a changing of substance. They teach that the bread and the wine become in their essence the body and blood of Jesus. So it changes from one substance to another. It is truly, literally, the body and the blood of Jesus. When the priest announces, this is my body, the bread transforms into the physical body of Jesus, though outwardly it retains the form of bread. And it is the same for the cup. So for the Roman Catholic Church, the is means identity and is to be taken in a literal sense. We, however, believe this to be figurative. The is carries the meaning of represents or symbolizes. Now, we do believe Jesus to be spiritually present in the supper, but we do not believe him to be physically present. And this phrase must be understood figuratively for at least three reasons. There's more, but I'll only go, go for three. First, when Jesus said these words, he was physically there in his body. And so historically, that could not be what he meant. And today, he still retains his body and will keep that body into all of eternity. Second, the supper 
is an act of remembrance until Jesus comes again, meaning he is physically absent. Does that make sense? We can't long for someone to come who is already here. And the third, a literal understanding would be the same mistake that the Jews made in John chapter 6 when Jesus told them that he is the bread of life and that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood if they would have eternal life. They took him to be speaking literally. But Jesus corrects the issue. He explains to his disciples. He says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus tells them that he's speaking figuratively and that this is a spiritual truth. And this is why Jesus said earlier, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He is speaking figuratively just as he does with the Lord's Supper. And so these things are symbols of Jesus. But back to the matter at hand, the remembrance This is all about Jesus' atoning work. He broke the bread and told them that it symbolized his body, which was for his disciples. The bread signifies his body, which bore the wrath of God for their sins. And he took the cup and told them that it symbolizes the new covenant in his blood. This means that the new covenant has been ratified by his blood. Where the old covenant was maintained by the continual shedding blood of lambs, this new covenant is secured by the eternally sufficient blood of of Jesus. And so this is a memorial for us. We remember these things. We remember the scourging. We remember the mocking and the hatred that he received. We remember him carrying the cross. We remember him being nailed to the cross. We remember him hanging in agony. We remember how darkness covered the land. We remember how he cried out, it is finished, and breathed his last We remember his side being pierced with blood and water running out. We remember him buried in Joseph's tomb. And we remember the empty tomb. We remember our guilt. We remember his forgiveness. We remember that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the most precious thing that Paul recounts here in these verses are two words found in verse 24. It is for you. This is not just for the disciples in the upper room sharing the meal with Jesus. It is for all who would share their faith. And so Citizens Church, it is for you. Why did the Son of God become incarnate? For you. Why did he suffer hatred at the hands of the people that he created for you? Why did he suffer the brutality of his floggings, the anguish of the crucifixion, and the dread of God's wrath? It's for you. That's beautiful. What a beautiful Savior, indeed, as we just sung. We remember that he came for us because he loved us. And not because we were lovable, but in order to make us lovely. He he came for us not because he couldn't imagine heaven without us, but because he wanted us to enjoy him forever. We remember that it is all about God. We are the benefactors of who he is 
and what he does. In the partaking of the supper, we solemnly remember these things. And so when you come to the table, come in solemn remembrance until we eat together. So what is the Lord's Supper? First, it is an act of remembrance. Second, it is a proclamation of the gospel. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when a church partakes of the Lord's Supper, it proclaims the gospel. It is a, it is a picture of the gospel. We might say that it is a visual sermon. And while preaching is an audible sermon, the Lord's Supper is a visual, visual and tangible sermon. It brings the gospel from an idea in our ears to a visible enactment in front of our eyes. We might say that it is immersive. Physically, we get to meet with where our hearts are after receiving the preaching of the Word of God. And it brings us into closer communion with Jesus and with one another. And there is a past, present, and future reality to this proclamation, which shouldn't surprise us because the gospel has a past, present, and future reality to it. The Lord's Supper... It serves as a real announcement of Jesus' atoning work on the cross. We are to be transported to Calvary and to see his sacrifice afresh and to be shocked once again at the scandal of grace, to be grieved for our sins that would require such a thing and be glad that he bore it for us. Uh, presently, we enjoy the blessings of our Lord. We are spiritually nourished by Jesus. We eat and we drink and just as ordinary food nourishes our physical bodies, so the elements of communion nourishes our spirits. We are refreshed in Christ. Jesus said in John 6, My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And so we know that our Lord is present with us every time that we come to the table. The Lord's Supper is a, a proclamation of God's promises for us. As we participate in the Supper, we call these promises to our minds, and there we find encouragement and strength. We are spiritually nourished. It shows that you are walking with the Lord, and that as a church, we are walking in a unity that proclaims the truth about who Christ is. And we do this until He comes. There's a future orientation to this proclamation. It's an assurance of what is yet to come. Those words are more than simply a teaching about how, how long a church is to be doing this. The Lord's Supper serves to remind us of Jesus' return when he will make all things new. It's, it's sort of a dress rehearsal for the marriage supper of the Lamb that is coming. And so we might even say that this is only a shadow. Just as the Passover was a shadow of the supper, the supper is only a shadow of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that is our joy, what is yet to come. So just as our participation should be somber, it should also be joyful. So, citizens church, when you come to the table, let the elements preach to you, as it were. Really think and consider these things. And look and see that it is not just you, but your brothers and sisters. See the union that Christ has made. Feast and find spiritual nourishment in him. 
non-Christian, if you are here and you are not a Christian, watch and observe. Don't partake. We'll get in that in a minute. But look and consider. Think of what has been preached. Look at the many lives that have been changed by the Lord Jesus. Consider your life before a just and holy judge who will deal with your sin, who will punish you eternally. And see the mercy of Jesus who we proclaim and who the ceremony proclaims. Perhaps you too might find new life in him and begin to be spiritually nourished. So if you are here and you have never received Jesus Christ, if you have never believed that he is God incarnate, if you have never believed that he died a substitutionary atoning death for you, hear the gospel message that comes right off of this table this morning and commit yourself to Christ. The gospel is proclaimed every time that we eat and drink the Lord's Supper. But how often should we be doing this? And it may be strange for some of you whose experience was that this was celebrated once a month or maybe once every few months. Maybe you wonder why we do it every week. Is this the right way to do it? Well, Paul says at the beginning of this verse, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. And so there, there isn't a hard and fast command here about the frequency, just that it needs to happen. Well, so how often? I think that it is the same answer to, to this question or these questions. How often should you proclaim the death and resurrection of Christ? How often do you need to be reminded and assured of his work on your behalf? How often ought we proclaim his second coming? How often should we let the gospel confront our sins? For our church, the answer to that is easy and obvious. It's every time we gather. That is why we celebrate this weekly. And really, all four of these points point to why we celebrate it weekly, but this is pretty important. We want the gospel proclaiming power of the supper to be in effect every Lord's day. We proclaim his death until he comes every Lord's day. So when you come to the Lord's table, come celebrating and meditating on gospel hope. So what is the Lord's Supper? First, it is an act of remembrance. Second, it is a proclamation of the gospel. Third, it is an occasion for self-examination. It's restarting in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And so we come back to this solemn theme. When we take the Lord's Supper, we must come having examined ourselves. This is because Paul gives a warning here. Do not eat and drink in an unworthy manner. When you do, you sin against God. And that's what he means when he says that they will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And this sin against God will be judged. 
So two questions that we must ask are, what does it mean to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? And second, what is the judgment for eating and drinking in an unworthy manner? First, what does it mean to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? Well, at its core, the issue is being careless with your sin as you come to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, it is not a plaything. It is not something casual or insignificant. It is something serious. And so what does being careless with your sin look like? We'll look at verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does that phrase, without discerning the body, mean? We might think that it is referring to the church, which is the body of Christ. And so that would mean that it is sinful to come to the Lord's Supper without considering others in the church. And I do think that that idea is, is there. But the more sure meaning, I believe, is that it is referring to Jesus. We might say that it is a shorthand for his person and his work, everything that we have seen up to this point. So eating and drinking in an unworthy manner is a rejection of those things. It's, it's living in a way that is not in step, not in accord with the gospel. Essentially living an unrepentant life. Now, this is most obviously applied to non-Christians because non-Christians have not actually considered these things. For if they had, they would believe uh, the supper is a remembrance and a proclamation of the gospel, and the gospel cannot be remembered or proclaimed by those who have not experienced it. So, so hear me. If that is you, if you are not a Christian, we're very glad that you are here. We want you to be coming here every Sunday. But this is not for you. Do not eat and drink, for you will bring judgment on yourself. You cannot eat and drink because you would be doing it in an unworthy manner. So do not trifle with it. But take the time when we are celebrating to really consider these things. But this also applies to those who are Christians. Christians can also come in an unworthy manner, and it is in the same way. It's being careless with your sin. What is the sin issue that we have discussed last week in this larger passage is division and is dishonoring. It is selfishness, anger, and, and malice, these kinds of things. It is singing against one another. And Paul is telling these Corinthians that the way that they have been treating one another is sinful and must be corrected. Otherwise, they eat and drink God's judgment on themselves. They must examine themselves. And citizens' church, so must we. How can you see this in yourself? Well, do you come to the table mindlessly? Do you just come and grab it and then go back to your seat? Or do you come to the table with your mind full of the glories of Christ? Are you aware of sin and confessing it to the Lord? Do you come to the table ritualistically? Are you just going through the motions because it's just what you are supposed to do? Are you, are you laughing and making jokes, treating it like a break between the sermon and the final song? Do you come to the table with anger and bitterness in your heart toward a brother or sister in Christ? 
Are you refusing to forgive? Are you refusing to humble yourself and ask for forgiveness and seek reconciliation? May these things not be true of us, brethren. And it's not because we dishonor the supper, but it's because we're dishonoring the Savior. Why is it so distasteful to, to burn or stand on the American flag? It's not because we're offending the cloth and the material that it is made of. It is because we are offending that for which it stands. And it is the very same thing. This is his body and his blood. We dare not trifle with it. And so we come to the table We must examine ourselves. We must not come with flippancy. And you might ask, as a Christian, is there ever a time that I should not participate in the Lord's Supper? Now, if you were in my small group last week, you know that this question came up, and I have to uh, confess something. I have been corrected on this issue. I have been corrected. And I, I bring that up purely for the fact that I want us all to know that it's good to be corrected. It's good to live believing that what, you don't have everything right and that when you are offered gentle correction, the wrong attitude would be to posture yourself up and to not listen and to seek to argue and to win a fight. The right posture is to, in humility, consider these things. Study the scriptures for yourself. And so we want to be a church who does that and does that well. So when, when we confront or correct, we must do it in a spirit of love and humility. And when we receive it, we must receive it in a spirit of love and humility. Now, I'm not going to take a whole lot of time to explain uh, my answer to that question during my small group, but the answer ultimately was no Christians should participate in the supper because Christians should be repenting. They should examine themselves. But the pushback came from a passage in Matthew 5 where Jesus, during the Sermon on the Mount, tells his audience that if they come to the table to worship, uh, the temple rather, uh, to uh, worship by giving sacrifice, but they remember that they have sinned against a Jewish brother. In other words, uh, there is conflict, there is division, which is a very strong thematic tie to our passage, that they must immediately go and be reconciled before worshiping the Lord. And while this isn't a you know, one-to-one, this isn't talking about the Lord's Supper directly, I think the same principle does seem to be in place, such that if you know that you have sinned against your brother and sister, and you have not sought forgiveness and reconciliation, then you may not come to the table. Instead, you go and you make things right with your brother and sister. And this means that since we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday... Guess what? You've got one week, every week, to make your relationships right. And the anticipation of the celebration should push you to seek forgiveness. Even if you've been sinned against, it should push you to go and be reconciled. Maybe that brother or sister's a little too weak to do it. Humble yourself. Approach them that they might be won over. Maybe that happens during the week. Maybe that happens in the lobby. 
before the worship gathering begins. Maybe that happens when the table is open and you bring someone out into the hallway and you make things right. I think this shows the value of meeting together in person on a weekly basis. How precious to gather and to have to confront these things. Seeing your brother in person who you have sinned against ought to humble you. It's an occasion for humility. It is God's grace for you, though it's uncomfortable, though we don't like it. It is a grace of God. The Lord's Supper is an occasion for self-examination. Do not partake in an unworthy manner. If there is sin in your life, repent and receive the mercy of Christ. And it's better not to partake than to partake in an unworthy manner. But I also want you to know that there is a difference between harboring sin and being sinful yet fighting your sin. Those are two different things. The Lord's Supper is for sinners. Yes, it is a time for testing yourself. Test your motivations. Test your relationships. But this isn't about coming to the table without sin. It is about coming to the table knowing that you are a sinner found in Christ. It is about coming with a humble and repentant heart. If it was for perfect people, then none of us could take it. The Puritan uh, Thomas Watson said, Though we must come with bitter tears, yet without bitter hearts. Come, take, and eat. It is for you. So abstaining from the supper should be rare. You should never be content to not take and eat. But always come having examined yourself. So when you come to the Lord's table, prayerfully see where there is sin in you that you need to repent of. If your heart is hard toward the Lord, if there is sin that you know that you are harboring and refusing to bring before the Lord, you should abstain. For that would be an unworthy approach. And we do this because there is judgment. That's the second question. What is the judgment for eating and drinking in an unworthy manner? Well, here's the quick answer. It is discipline. It is chastisement. Paul is not talking about the judgment of hell. He talks about judgment. Paul's reference to hell would be at the very end of verse 32, where he says that we may not be condemned along with the world. So the non-Christian who would partake would bring further judgment, further condemnation on himself. But for the Christian, there is no fear of hell. Yet we will be disciplined for our sins. But not for punishment, ultimately. It's for holiness. It's so that we will be preserved. That's the point of what he says in verse 32. It keeps us from damnation. The author of Hebrews tells us that God chastises every son whom he receives. That this is God treating us as sons and that he disciplines for us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. That's what Paul's describing here. Now, that does not mean that we should seek this out. That does not mean that we should be careless with our behavior and our sins. That God uses our sin for his good purposes never means that we should sin. 
but it does mean that God is sovereign even over our sin. And rather than let the occasion destroy us, he uses the occasion to preserve us. But we might find it strange that this church was experiencing weakness, illness, and death as a result of their sin. Evidently, physical weakness, illness, and death can be God's judgment. Not always, but it certainly can be. And this isn't strange. We've seen this before throughout the Bible. We'll consider three people or three groups. Adam and Eve should be obvious. Their sin brought death, physical consequences for their spiritual action. Ananias and Sapphira, they were killed for lying against the Holy Spirit. And even Jesus, though not for his own sin, but for sin, he died. He suffered. And this also might be a sort of of spiritual weakness and sickness, the kind that James references in James chapter 5. There are people in the church who have all kinds of problems, and for some, it is because of the triviality with which they partake of the Lord's Supper. Judge yourselves rightly, Paul says, and you will not have these troubles. So examine yourself truly. I wonder if you are struggling this morning. Maybe you have been struggling for some time. And I wonder if this kind of casual approach to the Lord's table is the cause. Perhaps it is worth seriously considering this morning in your life. The Lord is calling you to examine yourself. So when you come to the table, come having examined yourself, knowing the seriousness of judgment. What is the Lord's Supper? First, an act of remembrance. Second, a proclamation of the gospel. Third, an occasion for self-examination. Fourth and finally, it is a call to repentance, love, and unity. Verse 33 and 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. We circle back to the theme from last week the division, the dishonoring, the selfishness, the refusal to wait for one another, all these are confronted and corrected by a a true understanding of the Lord's Supper. And so the command is to repent. Stop doing what you were doing and start walking in righteousness. And repentance for them looked as simple as waiting for one another. And to be sure, there were other sins to confront and confess, but this action is the outward sign of repentance. And repentance has external observance. We can know whether we have repented if our actions have changed. If we've sought to correct the matter, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, at every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. Contrition of heart will always manifest itself outwardly. 
And Paul tells them, satisfy your hunger at home so that you won't be tempted to act in a way that will bring God's judgment. And if we're honest, at times we are tempted to pursue our own happiness at the expense of others. In selfishness, we don't consider others, and we might even act maliciously. We want, we desire, we have our own appetites, and satisfaction is ripe for the taking. But we must resist this temptation. We must instead rise to the call to love one another, to seek out the interests of others, and in so doing, we please the Lord Jesus. And when this happens, Paul says that they will come together no longer for judgment. No longer is there rampant sin dividing the church. There has been an examination and a conviction which has led to repentance and a healing of the church. No longer coming together divided, but coming together united. No longer coming together for the worse, but coming together for the better. No longer tearing down each other and building up walls of hostility, but building up each other and tearing down walls of hostility. When we eat and drink the Lord's Supper, we remember our love for one another and we commit ourselves to honoring one another. The Lord's Supper is a communal event. So even as you are reflecting, repenting, and worshiping, I want to encourage you to consider others during that time. As you reflect on the hope of the gospel, Perhaps you think about how another brother or sister needs to be encouraged in the gospel, and you pray for them. Maybe you recall God's faithfulness in a brother or sister's life, and you praise God for that. Perhaps you are aware of conflict between two brothers or sisters, and you intercede for them. Think not only of yourself, but think also of one another. This is the call of love. And we do all this knowing that we are united together in Christ, sinful but repenting and committed to loving one another as Christ has loved us. So, Citizens Church, the Lord's Supper, it is a gracious gift from God. It is not some dry and empty ritual, but it is a rich expression of the gospel and our union with Christ. And just as it was a cure for the issues of division and dishonor for the Corinthians, so it is for us. It is my hope that uh, as we, though we take this weekly, that it would not become something common for us. That we wouldn't treat it just like some other thing that we do. We must always keep in our minds each Lord's Day what the supper is and therefore how we should respond. It is an act of remembrance. We remember what Jesus has done for us in his atonement. It is a proclamation of the gospel. We call to mind his presence and his grace. And we hope for his second coming. We take the gospel and we have it captivate all of our thoughts and desires. It is an occasion for self-examination. We look inward. We, we test ourselves. We see where the gospel needs to penetrate. We restore our relationships with one another. And as a call to repentance, love, and unity, we repent. We embrace the mercies of the Lord and we commit ourselves to him and his people. This is why we do this every week. And as we are about to partake, keep these things in mind. This is how we approach the Lord's table. 
This is how we sit in our seats with the elements in hand. This is how we take and eat together. It is my hope that the Lord's Supper will will take on a, a renewed sense of wonder and encouragement and grace for all of us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace which has saved us and sustains us. We thank you for the gift of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus. We know that we are in many ways sinful, yet we wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide beneath his righteousness. When we look upon the elements of the supper and consider all that he has done for us, we hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself an offering to remember your sin, shed my blood to blot out your guilt, endured your curses to set you free, bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. Father, may we truly grasp the depth and beauty of these things. Help us to come in love for you and one another. By your Spirit, strengthen our faith to rightly discern ourselves. We hear your tender invitation this morning to come and eat. We remember your eternal love, your boundless grace, and your infinite compassion. We receive assurance of pardon for adoption, life, and glory. As the outward elements nourish our bodies, so may the Holy Spirit nourish our souls as we feast spiritually on Christ until that day when we hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. Pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Christ, until that day when we hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. Pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.